And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. By the way, coming up tomorrow, it's Midday on Cars. John Davis, the host of Motor Week on public television, will join me to talk about the current car market, the future car market. And by the way, spoiler alert, it's electric. And to answer your questions about what you're driving and what you might be thinking about driving. So John Davis joins me on Midday tomorrow. Joining me now is Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch. After serving in the Maryland House of Delegates for eight years, and the Maryland Senate for 20 years. He was elected to be the state's chief legal officer in 2014, the same year that Governor Larry Hogan was elected governor. Frosch, a Democrat, has not always seen eye-to-eye with the governor, and just a couple of months ago he was involved in a public dispute with the Baltimore State's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, a fellow Democrat. Next month he will retire. At the end of this, his second term, he'll be succeeded by Congressman Anthony Brown, who won election as attorney general by a wide margin in November. As Attorney General Frosch leaves office, we've invited him to the show to reflect on his tenure in that position. Brian Frosch joins me in Studio A. Mr. Attorney General, it's good to see you. It's been a minute. Yes, it has. Thanks for having me, Tom. So your thoughts as, uh, you know, you've had a 36-year career in public service. Um, uh, what, what are you thinking about? A lot of people, when they retire, it, it terrifies them. Sometimes it, uh, you know, they have the opposite uh, reaction. Where where are you in that spectrum? Yeah, I'm I'm ambivalent. You know, I this is a great job. I I think you can have a huge impact as attorney general, and it's been very challenging, very interesting, and a lot of fun. And uh, I'll miss that a lot. On the other hand, um, you know, sixty hour weeks are uh, not something that I need to do, and that's uh, encouraging as well. So I'm hoping to have the best both worlds. Any specific plans for uh, post-office uh, holding? Well, you know, I'm a uh, lifelong Washington baseball fan, and they need a new center fielder. That's my first choice. Uh, I'm not sure I'm quite up to it, but if they'll have me, that's where I'm going. That's it. Hit the batting cage and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, talk about your relationship with Larry Hogan, the governor, Republican governor, you were both elected in the same cycle and then re-elected for a second term. Um, Talk about how that relationship um, has evolved, if it has, and the importance of the attorney general and the governor, you know, working hand in hand. We're, We're looking forward to a new administration where all three of the top statewide elected officials uh, are new to their office. Um, so Anthony Brown, Westmore, both Democrats. Um, one would assume they're they're going to be closer to being on the same page than you and Mr. Hogan were. But your reflections on that dynamic? Well, uh, Larry Hogan and I have a cordial relationship, but uh, we don't we don't see each other regularly or socially, um, or even much for uh, business. We have deeply different uh, political views and deeply different philosophies and views of government. Um, I've been critical of Governor Hogan over the past years because uh, I think Maryland government has suffered very badly under his leadership. Employment, the, the staffing levels at our key departments are way, way below what they need to be in order for them to do their jobs effectively. And you can see it in the Department of Labor's struggles uh, with unemployment, uh, paying people in the, in the 
depths of the COVID pandemic, people who needed their unemployment checks to pay the rent to keep food on the table weren't getting them by the hundreds of thousands. That was a that was a serious problem. We've seen similar failures in the Department of Health and uh, certainly the Department of Environment has uh, basically stopped doing routine enforcement. Uh, if there's a high-profile issue, uh, then sometimes uh, they pursue it. But the level of inspectors is way down, and their effectiveness has plummeted as a result. And uh, so, you know, we struggle because we represent all of those agencies. Uh, we struggle to, to do our job and help them do their jobs, but, you know, it just isn't working the way it should be. How about staffing in the attorney general's office? It's not what it needs to be. Um, first of all, our folks are are dramatically underpaid. We don't expect to be able to compete with the private sector, but we certainly don't compete with federal government. And now we are not competitive with many of the local governments that surround our offices. People can make twenty, thirty, forty thousand bucks a year more working for some of the local governments. And, uh, you know, our folks, while they love public service, have to pay the rent. They have to put their kids through college. It's a struggle. And is the answer to that then simply a matter of more funding for the AG's office uh, to hire uh, not only more lawyers but pay each of them better salaries. Yeah, a- absolutely it is. I mean, we're getting fewer applicants and um you know, we're struggling to fill vacancies with the salaries that we have. We're also understaffed in in critical areas and you know, it, here's an example of um I I think problems within our office but also within uh state government itself. We have a we have a robust consumer protection division. And we get thirty to 40,000 calls and emails a year from folks who need help, who've been cheated, who've been ripped off, uh, maybe cheated out of their life savings. And we're also getting calls for the rest of state government because uh, they don't pick up the phone in many of the other agencies. You can't get through to a live person. And so our consumer folks are overburdened. Uh, and it's partly because, you know, they can't get through to the Department of Labor or whatever. What What's the pitch, then, that your successor, Anthony Brown, can make to a lawyer uh, who, you know, is considering public service? But as you say, um, there's the financial incentive of working for a private law firm. But I've also heard from people at some of the larger law firms here in town that they're having a difficult time yeah. recruiting lawyers. So it's it's not just the government. Uh, it's it's the private sector as well, even with the salaries that they're able to pay. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, well, we have we have the best work in the state. I mean, it's the most interesting. It's the most important and the most challenging. And uh, couple with that, the fact that you get 
a lot of responsibility very quickly. If you're a, a young lawyer uh, or if you're an experienced lawyer, you can walk into our office and represent one of the uh, executive agencies or one of the universities or um, be in our consumer protection or antitrust divisions and handle the most important matters and the most important issues that there, that there are in the state of Maryland. If you're an associate in a private firm, you're going to be reading depositions and reviewing documents and second chairing uh, uh, trials. But in our office, you're the guy or you're the woman. And uh, you're, you're up there trying a case. You're up there talking to the president of the university or the secretary and saying, here's how you have to handle this issue. And given the fact that there's so-called uh, unified government and that we'll have a Democratic governor, a Democratic attorney general, even a Democratic controller, um, do you expect that uh, this is the year that the General Assembly would be uh, willing to pass uh, allocation for the AG's office that's, that's bigger? I mean, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Governor Hogan, before he leaves office and the inauguration of uh, Governor-elect Moore is scheduled for the 18th of January, um, your uh, successor takes office on the 2nd of January, so it's a little earlier, the 3rd, I guess, Third. maybe. Yep. Um, but it, as I understand it, Governor Hogan will submit a budget to the General Assembly, and then Governor-elect Moore, once he's inaugurated, can also then submit a budget or revise the one yeah, Governor Hogan. Yeah, supplemental. So um, is this the year this could happen? I hope it is. I know that Attorney General-elect Brown gets this. He and I were on the phone with the Budget Secretary or on Zoom uh, this morning uh, talking about these very issues. And uh, I, I understand that Governor Moore is aware of the problem. It's a, it's a government-wide problem. I think ours is a bit more acute, but uh, it's a government-wide problem. And I believe that that is a high priority not only of the governor but also of the, the General Assembly. And I know Anthony Brown is going to be in there pitching for uh, help for the AG's office. Um, right off the bat, when you and Governor Hogan were elected, um, you had a big disagreement uh, over stormwater fees back in 2014. I mean, he, uh, Governor Hogan branded those the rain tax, right. and, and it did quite well for him because it seemed to be something that uh, was appealing to a lot of voters. He's a Republican uh, who won in a Democratic state against a, a well-known uh, candidate, Anthony Brown, as a matter of fact. Right. Um, is there uh, a place for sort of um, political uh, agenda coordination between the attorney general and the governor? I mean, would you recommend that uh, attorney general-elect Brown sit down with governor-elect Moore and say, okay, here are the things we really need to do, or should there be, you know, more independence uh, in the office of the AG? Well, that's, that's a really interesting question. And I think Steve Sachs was the first attorney general who said, look, I'm independent. I'm not running on a ticket with a gubernatorial candidate. He had a fabulous relationship with Harry Hughes. They coordinated on lots of stuff, probably most stuff. They agreed politically and ideologically on, on most of the stuff, but he made it very clear that he was independent. He was going to make the decisions that were his, and uh, while he was willing to listen to the governor, he wasn't going to be he wasn't going to, you know, just fall in line and, and do that. And I think that's the appropriate, I think that's the optimum kind of uh, relationship. If you can coordinate, if you can cooperate, if you can seek the same uh, objectives, 
each officer can be more effective. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think there was a uh, another divide between Governor Hogan and myself uh, when Donald Trump was elected. Uh, I asked the, one of Donald Trump's first initiatives was the Muslim ban executive order. I wrote to the governor. I said, look, this is unconstitutional. It's terrible policy. Let me sue because the attorney general of Maryland does not have that ability without either permission from the governor or uh, a law from the general assembly. And he didn't respond. I, I turned to the general assembly and said, can you pass a bill? And as you know, uh, they're in session for 90 days. It takes them about 75 days to clear their collective throats. But on this one, uh, they passed a bill within two weeks, and we were in court uh, to, to challenge the second iteration of the Muslim ban and the other terrible policies that uh, Donald Trump was, was setting forth. They mandated that the governor give us a million dollars to staff up to do that. And what Governor Hogan said was, okay, you can take it out of your consumer protection fund. Uh, that was not something that we were uh, enthusiastic about doing. Yeah. So, you know, we shuffled things around and we made it work. But it was, you know, we were, we were sharply divided on those issues. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest is Attorney General of Maryland, Brian Frosch. Um, and, Mr. Attorney General, when it comes to um, prosecuting or, or suing the Trump administration, that we talked about this uh, several occasions, you know, during your tenure in office. There were those who said, you know, we should be concentrating on things that have to do with Marylanders uh, and that this is, uh, you know, uh, an outside concern. Um, some of these lawsuits you were uh, enacting yourselves, others you were joining, others attorney, uh, attorneys general around the country. Um, but how do you respond to that? You had a, an opponent in, uh, in, in one of your uh, races that said, you know, uh, I'm going to concentrate on Maryland. I'm not going to worry about Donald Trump as egregious as Donald Trump may be. But because you, you went after Mr. Trump for uh, violations of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. You mentioned the Muslim ban, etc. Um, how do you respond to folks who say, you know, Trump wasn't our problem? Well, I, th I think it was everyone's problem, and it came from a lot of different directions. I mean, he had a terrible environmental agenda or anti-environmental agenda, and we were in there. I mean, he had a plan to uh, allow drilling off our shores, off, off of Maryland, off the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, something that was potentially a catastrophe. Uh, for the Chesapeake Bay, because even in routine oil operations, uh, you have spills. And uh, as you may know, just by way of a small example, uh, crabs, female crabs, migrate to the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay every year to spawn. Their spawn rise to the top quarter inch of the water column. And that's exactly where routine oil spills and catastrophic oil spills occur. Um, the whole crab population of the Chesapeake Bay was at risk with a plan to, to allow drilling there. So we fought that. Um, there were, you know, the chemical accident safety rule that told uh, uh, firefighters, well, the, the Obama administration had put a rule in place that said, if you're storing toxic chemicals, you got to tell the first responders, you got to tell the neighbors, because if something goes wrong, their lives are at stake. And Trump tried to eliminate that. We fought back against it. Uh, it. It was a, you know, a life 
endangering proposition. Uh, and uh, there were dozens of other environmental examples, but then there were there were consumer examples. You know, they there were students who were being ripped off by these private for-profit uh, universities. Not all of them bad, but some of them were just predatory. The, the students got nothing of value, paid tens of thousands of dollars, or went tens of thousands of dollars into debt, and uh, despite Congress's insistence that uh, they'd be taken care of, despite the fact that they were violating uh, the laws in many respects, consumer protection and others. The Trump administration, Betsy DeVos, his secretary of education, was giving him a pass, uh, letting him off the hook. So there were a number of areas that that directly impact the lives of Marylanders that we were protecting. And I think civil rights is something that uh, every Marylander has an interest in, we were pushing back on some of his most egregious policies. The family separation rule, I think, was the maybe the worst federal government policy I've seen put in place in my lifetime. Um, and uh, the Emoluments Clause is about corruption. Uh, you know, we were the first ones, the Attorney General of D.C., Carl Racine, and I were the first ones to blow the whistle on it. Uh, Trump was receiving millions of dollars from foreign governments and, in some cases, from state governments in violation of the original anti-corruption law of the United States. All of these things impact Marylanders, and I, we were successful, you know, across the board. And I think it was a worthy endeavor, and I think the results prove it. We'll have more with Attorney General Brian Frosch on the other side of a quick break. You're welcome to join our conversation, 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday WIPR. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch. He will leave office at the end of this month after serving two terms as the chief legal officer of our state. To join us, 410-662-8780, our email midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR and Attorney General, we have a couple of comments. First is uh, uh, you have been an absolutely stellar Attorney General. We'll miss your quiet, persistent strength. You deserve a rest, but we hope you'll continue to stay involved. We have another tweet from uh, David who says, the homicide epidemic in Baltimore has not been solved during your tenure. Why not? In retrospect, if you had every resource at your disposal, along with willing partners at every level, what would you have done to solve the problem? Yeah, the street crime is not a typical venue for the attor attorney general. It's, uh, when I came into office, we stood up an organized crime unit. Uh, we have a, we, 
for many years we had eight lawyers. We may have nine now. I'm not sure. But but it's a small group. They go after uh, violent crime, gangs, uh, drug uh, trafficking organizations. And it's been extraordinarily effective. We've indicted and put behind bars hundreds of the most dangerous people around the state, um, many from Baltimore City. Um, there was a point at which Governor Hogan asked me to do that, uh, asked me to get more involved, to have more people. It was, uh, it's a very contentious issue because it's the state's attorney of Baltimore City whose jurisdiction uh, it normally is for this kind of stuff. And she was, she was opposed to it. I said to the governor, I'd be glad to do it. We needed uh, a number of new people uh, to do it. And the money was briefly in the budget, but then uh, we were told we had to cut back. And rather than firing people who were already on our staff, uh, we said, well, you know, we would rather give up the new unit than go around the office and, and find people to fire. And so it it remained that you know we had eight additional people um, that had not been involved in this kind of stuff previously, and they punch way above their weight, but not enough to solve the homicide issue in, in Baltimore City. Is there a way of improving the coordination between federal, state, and local law enforcement and prosecutorial institutions. I mean, you've. Um, this is not the only example where you and uh, the current state's attorney here in Baltimore City, Marilyn Mosby, have disagreed. The Adnan Syed case is another right. example where you just are totally polar opposites of, of that case. I mean, how, how do we, because, you know, folks hear this um, and they say, well, gee whiz, can't everybody play in the sandbox better so that we get better results? Look, you can always improve relations among the, the numerous law enforcement agencies that are at work in our state and in Baltimore City. And I, I have to say, Marilyn Mosby and I were in totally agreement for seven years on the Adnan Syed case. It's only this year that uh, we've separated in our views. Um, but overall, we have excellent relationships with the U.S. Attorney, with the Drug Enforcement Administration, and the uh, the ATF, uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms uh, Federal Agency, uh, with uh, the FBI, and they're they're the folks that we get our uh, cases from. Well, also we have a great relationship with the Baltimore City Police Department, with the Department of Corrections, P Public Safety and Corrections, and all of those. Uh, factor into the work that we do. We cooperate with them. We send them cases. They send us cases. And, and, and I'm sure all of that's true, but the needle yeah. isn't moving. You know, I mean, no, the, the number of homicides is, is still just as horrible as it's been for the past eight years. Yeah. The number of non-fatal shootings, you know, just it's, it's, we live in a very violent place. How do we coordinate in a way that, that moves the needle? Well, it's, Tom, it's not just uh, the arrests and convictions that are going to solve that problem. Uh, there are many other things that need to happen. Uh, criminal justice, the General Assembly has been working very hard uh, to improve our criminal justice system, not just in terms of arresting people and putting them behind bars, but uh, doing justice in the process. And... Um, I think 
the homicide issue is driven largely by the availability of guns in our country and in our state. It's ridiculous uh, how easy it is. I mean, Maryland has cracked down on uh, on gun crimes and has passed laws that protect us um, from people uh, having guns who have a tendency to be to be violent, and it works. Most of the guns that are used in crimes in the state of Maryland come from out of state. They come from our neighbors in Virginia and Pennsylvania and Georgia and uh, in Alabama and Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And um, we're un- unfortunately, you know, we don't have secure borders. We can't build a wall uh, across the border with Pennsylvania. Um, so some of these problems are the result of national issues that we are not addressing appropriately, and I'm pointing my finger at the Supreme Court here. Um, and uh, and others are um, social issues. I mean, you gotta kids have to have a, a fair chance. They need a good education. Uh, they need they need to have three meals a day at least. And uh, they need to have shelter and, and people who love them and care for them. And there are way too many children in our state who don't have those, I would say, basics. And uh, if they don't grow up uh, with, with those things, they can And obviously, obviously that's well outside the purview it of the is. Attorney General's office. Right. But, but it's not outside the purview to, you know, have prosecutorial coordination, to target the people. We always hear about the bad guys with guns, and, the, and the, if we get the bad guys off yep. the streets, there are certain people who need to be incarcerated, even though on the same hand there is an over-incarceration uh, dilemma of, you know, African Americans. I mean, you know, two things yeah. can be true at the same time. Um, I think people just are are uh, are, are, are frustrated, uh, and I'm sure you understand that. Yeah. I I absolutely do. I mean, I, I have a daughter who lives in Baltimore, and and I'm concerned. I'm concerned about her every day, not because she lives in Baltimore, but yes. I mean, it's a personal issue to me. There's a new unit within the agency. Uh, the General Assembly passed this bill not too long ago to have the AG's office look into police-involved shootings. Right. So this is you know relatively new uh, thing. How's that going? I mean, you issued a report uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, didn't find any fault uh, among the law enforcement in, in this particular group of 20-something, 23 police-involved fatalities. Um, how, how do you think that unit is working? How's that law working? So the way the way it works is that we do the investigations, and we then turn over those investigations to the local state's attorneys, and they decide whether or not to prosecute. So we, we tell them what our legal analysis is, uh, but we do not tell them what to do. And um, I, the overall, it, I think it's worked very well. Uh, we've we've given an objective, very hard look at, at each one of those cases, uh, and our our unit I think has gotten good reviews from everyone, states, attorneys, police, uh, and and the public. Um, and I'm, you know, the police are out there. They're doing a very hard job. Their lives are on the line. Not every time somebody dies in police custody is it the fault of law enforcement officers. And uh, we have had fewer 
cases than we anticipated. And there, there are two things at work here, we think, or we don't know why. We, we anticipated the average going into this for us was uh, 35 to 40 uh, police-involved fatalities a year. We got 23 in our first year. And it's not statistically significant, but it does make you scratch your head. And there are two things at work, potentially. One is now you have a an uninvolved, neutral agency that looks at each one of these cases. You also have a new uh, standard passed by the General Assembly for the use of force. And the combination of those two things may make uh, our law enforcement folks think a bit longer uh, before they take fatal action. One quick question, because we have to go or we're out of time, but uh, do you expect that the courts will allow the release of the report on clergy sex abuse in the Catholic Church, which was prepared by Elizabeth Embry, who's about to be sworn in as a delegate in the General Assembly? Um, you're suing the court to, to make that publicly available. Where does that stand? So uh, it is in the hands of the circuit court. I, I certainly hope that it will be released. I think it's very important. There are, uh, there's a lot of very useful information in there. I hope it'll be uh, helpful to the survivors of the abuse that was going on for many years. So I hope so. Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch, he will retire at the end of this month after 36 years of service to the citizens of Maryland, including eight as our state's top lawyer. Thank you for that service, Mr. Attorney General, and thank you for your time today. Thanks. Great to be with you, Tom. Thank you. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, it's Midday on Cars. John Davis, the host of Motor Week on MPT, will be my guest. He'll take your questions about all things automotive. Here and Now is up next after news at the top of the hour. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day. This is your public radio, 88.1 WYPR.